Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Flint. I remember using so many security tools and you'd run a scan and you're like, hey, here's 10,000 vulnerabilities. And you're like, there's not 10,000 vulnerabilities. Like, well, no, of course there's not. You just need to check them all because there's probably 5,000. I'm like, well, this is not helpful to me. As I tried to operationalize those things in Mozilla or in Twitter, like I can't just tell my security engineers to do this or throw it over the gate to developers and have them do it. And so all of these things start to come together to invisible, easy, accurate, like that is the theme of where security needs to go. Hi, welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darian Kinlan, VP of Technology here at Fletch. And joining me as always every week is Chris Wilder, Research Director and Senior Analyst at Tag Cyber. Hey, Darian. It's been a couple of days, but yeah, it's good to be here. As always, this exciting time of the year. Absolutely. And with us this week, actually, is our special guest, Michael Coates, CISO and VP of Engineering at CoinList, a token distribution platform that helps launch new crypto assets. Michael is a cybersecurity executive, startup founder, investor, and advisor to emerging cybersecurity startups. With over 20 years of experience, he's secured some of the world's most prominent companies. During his tenure as the CISO at Twitter and Mozilla, Michael played a pivotal role in safeguarding users, systems, and data. As the first CISO of Twitter, he led organizations responsible for protecting nearly 300 million users from threats such as organized cybercrime, insider attacks, and nation-state threat groups. As an entrepreneur, Michael co-founded Altitude Networks, a groundbreaking data security company that revolutionized secure SaaS cloud collaboration by preventing document theft and compromise. Last year, Altitude was acquired by CoinList. But beyond his corporate achievements, Michael is also a thought leader in the cybersecurity community. He's frequently invited to speak at industry conferences, webinars, and educational programs where he shares insights on security management and the future of cybersecurity. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you much. I'm really excited to be here. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So we'll be talking with Michael about crypto threats and how the next generation of cybersecurity companies need to be easy and invisible and more. But first, let's run through this week's threat landscape and trending threats. And it's been kind of an interesting week, I would say, looking at the numbers. Fletch, we've actually gathered so much data over the past day, week, and month around what are the most popular major threats that make the headlines that we've now started to see a trend almost. And it's not necessarily the trend that I was expecting. Looking from a security operator's perspective, I would have gathered that or guessed that a lot of the major threats would coincide with major holidays when operators were short on staff. But from what the data shows, these peaks actually correspond to the start and the end of summer, which is interesting. I'm curious your thoughts here, Chris. I think it's relatively normal. I think what we're seeing, though, are the the threats and the attacks that, that are going on are kind of recycled. You know, we'll mm -hmm. be talking about MGM and Okta here in a little bit, but there's a lot of interesting attacks that are happening there. But I think they're prepping the battlefield because I think the next wave of attacks that are coming are to be very much on critical infrastructure. Yeah, so this kind of looks like normal. I mean, the number of emerging threats that we've seen over the past week compared to previous weeks is certainly lower. But yeah. trending in mainstream is roughly about the same. So I would consider this like a normal week in the day in the life of a security operator. I agree. Yeah. So when we look at some of what has made the headlines this past week, there's certainly a lot of chatter, specifically around a number of threats that were focused on ransomware, as well as targeting the cryptocurrency industry. 
first on our list, the group known as ALF V or ALF 5, also known as Black Cat, supposedly compromised Caesar Palace and MGM Entertainment over in Las Vegas. Now, this particular threat group is very prolific, but this is probably one of the biggest headlines that has persisted over the past couple of days, if not couple of weeks. From what we've seen, the attack is still ongoing. There's still some evidence of trying to defend against this particular intrusion. And certainly the ransomware group behind the attack has been very vocal about exactly what data they have, how much they're holding hostage. But there's some interesting chatter about well, how was this coordinated? And there's some unsubstantiated theories about, well, was this coincided with one of the more popular cybersecurity conferences in Vegas this past year? I'm, I'm curious your thoughts here, Chris, if there's any credence to be had about correlation or timing between these events. I think so. Last year at Black Hat, there was a pretty significant attack at the casino where the conference was, and they took out all the slot machines. Floor was just dark, and it was really kind of eerie. So I think it's it's a pretty nice, juicy target. One thing about this is, you know, Black Hat's very, very known for not just ransomware, but also the double extortion, where they, they still will sell mm -hmm. that data out to the world. This raises a lot of red flags for this attack just because it's, you know, like I said, they came through an Okta agent and a lot of organizations use Okta. But then the, the mm -hmm. even scarier thing is it's coming through the ESXi supervisors, which is kind of where all the Linux systems are. So casinos are a juicy target. There's a lot of money there. This is a huge ransomware attack. I don't know how they're going to recover from this, but they're always under attack and they just need to be, be more vigilant. And these guys warned them. They told them that they had done this before they actually encrypted the data. So, you know, right. they were giving lots of warnings and running a marching band through their infrastructure. From your perspective, Michael, what are the, some of the takeaways that you have as a CISO, maybe not directly within this industry space, but certainly adjacent? It's interesting to see the information that comes out on this. Um, on one hand, Caesars released an 8K last Wednesday to the SEC, calling out that they had taken remedial actions against the situation or remediation action and that the entry point was social engineering. But what they call out in there was that they took actions to ensure the data was deleted by the attackers but cannot guarantee it, which all lines up into the support that they did pay a ransom of what's believed to be 15 million of the $30 million ransom that was held on them. And then MGM on the same wow. side was also believed to be social engineering as the entry point. And then from there, of course, lateral movement, systems being ransomed, proactive takedown of technology by MGM and defense. And so it all, all the house of cards starts to fall. In terms of this being kind of a, a weak spot, social engineering, this has been around for a while now. Is it just a lack of consistent and regular security awareness training among all of the staff that have access to IT infrastructure? I mean, is that really what would be the, the best mitigation long-term for protecting against these sorts of attacks from your perspective? You know, I think that the more we say we need more training and the users need to be more vigilant, the more we just show we don't know what we're doing. That is totally the wrong direction. We are human beings and human beings are not perfect. And you know what? They have their day jobs. They have a lot of things they're doing, which is not trying to decipher every single interaction, whether or not it is somebody trying to trick them. And so what we have wow. to do is move past that world and say, the solution is better technology and better cybersecurity defenses that don't require the human to do all of our work. And so... We've tackled this with passwords, for example. Like forever, we blame the user. You picked bad passwords. Oh, you reused a right. password. 
oh, you used text 2FA. That's not secure, even though we told them to use 2FA. Oh, you put your 2FA code in the Fisher's website. Oh, of course you did. It's, that's what you do to log in. But we finally right. got there with FIDO2 and said, hey, use this little key. Like, I get it. You got to get a key set up, but then push the key. That's it. Even if you make a mistake, the fishers can't use it because of public key cryptography. That is the type of wow. thinking we need to bring in far more places, which is the user doesn't have to be perfect. The user can make a mistake and it still works. So for social engineering, I mean, it's, it's reported that they targeted the um, help desk. They called them up. Yeah. They probably gave them, hey, I'm on vacation. I lost my phone, whatever. I need access. And we don't know what their policies were, but we can guess that they were pretty industry standard. Maybe you answer a few secret questions. You maybe you report your boss or start stuff that can be discovered. That relies on humans making judgment calls, and it's the wrong wrong approach. Like switch over hardcore to like KYC type technology. Like you can hold up your face to the phone. You can do all these sort of identifications. We use this to, for consumers everywhere, but corporations aren't using that yet. And that's, that's a failure. We're just stuck in the past. That's a really good point. I mean, most help desk operations are designed to be helpful. Like that's part of yeah. their job. So asking them to do something counter to what they normally would want to do is confusing at best and disruptive at worst. The fact uh, is the attacks are advancing and we've got to be advancing on the defensive side as well. You know, going back to just the ransomware group behind this particular hack, a lot of people wonder why them, right? How did they get so popular? And there's actually another interesting article that came out about how Black Cat specifically has supposedly a robust affiliate program, meaning that they don't actually have a ton of social engineering attackers on staff. Instead, they contract out that work in many cases to other organizations who essentially gain initial access to the victim organization and then pass that access over to the main black hat operators to do ransomware negotiations. In this particular case, Mandian identified that there was a particular group known as UNC3944, also known as Scattered Spider, which appears to have a affiliate relationship to black hat. It's interesting. I mean, on some level, it's not surprising that ransomware operations is now up-leveling their organizational structure, right? So that it's more systemic in nature. But this shows like a breathtaking advance in that capability, some of which we saw maybe, you know, five years ago within nation-state threat groups. We're now seeing it within cyber criminal organizations. I'm curious, Chris, yeah. um, do you see this trend appearing within other popular ransomware groups or is this specific to just Black Cat's operations? No, I, I, this is a big, this is a trend that we're seeing. It's also being propagated by nation-sponsored groups. They've, they've got a lot of money to be able to pull these things together. And, and like we talked about earlier, I think we had, was an 80-20 on ransomware between the affiliate and, and Black Hat. We talked about that a while ago. These guys were actually, they were a big part of this attack, but they specifically went after things like food credits, doors, you know, door, door key, key locks, those kinds of things. So they went after kind of that infrastructure side of it, you know, the physical infrastructure, whereas the Black Hat guys went after the network infrastructure. 
I see it very coordinated. Going back to your first question, is it timed? Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see more of these affiliated times because these guys all have different techniques. They have different sophistications, but they're all financially motivated to do this. I, I definitely agree with that. I've seen that from a security perspective, we think about you know vulnerabilities and attacks, and sometimes we don't stop to think about the the adversaries and their motivations, or we lump them into the well, it's a cyber criminal gang. Okay, stop. It's a nation state. Stop. Yeah. But actually, in the cyber criminal space, it is an entire business where yeah. they have optimized for each step of the workflow. And so to see these ransomware as a service is not unexpected. And what we see here, where they provide one piece of the puzzle, and they don't have to be the experts or even the operators, because they can sell their services to the next person in the criminal chain. And we saw similar things years ago as password credential theft really took a spike where the people actually acquiring the credentials would then package them up and resell them on the, you know, quote, dark web to other people. And they would build a reputation for whether or not their credentials were good. So as they tried to throw in other ones that weren't valid or had been reset, their street cred went down. And so again, it's all business and their reputation, their marketing. And so each step of that supply chain has been optimized by these players. And so again, we see that here with the two different groups, Black Cat and Scattered Spider. Makes and sense. These are, these are literally, they look like tech startups. They really are. You know, they have a P&L, they have numbers they have to hit. As people get paid. The ransomware help desk is, it is literally a help desk. <laughs> so right. it's astonishing how, how sophisticated and how mature they're starting to become. So Michael, you mentioned the advent of FIDO2 credentials as a, as a valid, at least higher barrier to preventing these sorts of tactics from being used in organizations. I'm curious if you see pass keys being kind of pushed and mandated by organizations now is a major defensive measure in response to these successful ransomware breaches. Like is is the advent of more and more ransomware attacks going to push more FIDO2 pass key adoption in organizations and enterprises? Or is it still going to be just a reactionary measure from your perspective? I think there's kind of two ways to look at that. One, it depends on like the point of entry for these ransomware attacks as to whether or not it continues to increase the need for it. Because, I mean, as we all know, like ransomware is the byproduct of whatever of the numerous methods of breach, you know, got you into the servers. So in this case with, you know, MGM and Caesars calling the help desk, you know, FIDO2 wouldn't have been the solution here. However, the concept of having a human foolproof approach, of course, is needed. But that's not to say that the other wave of phishing, which is happening, which doesn't involve, you know, vishing or voice calls, when it does just target the employee through email or text or whatever, it's a no-brainer at this point that you've got to switch to FIDO2 or you will definitely be compromised. What's happening with those phishing campaigns is they assume and expect corporations to have two-factor and they just build it into the phishing test. So here's your super legitimate login page that you need to log into because of phishing message. And here is your two-factor prompt. It's the exact same experience you'd expect. And we saw this take place, what, six, nine months ago against CircleCI and GitHub. And that was targeted against crypto industries. And again, it accounted for the 2FA token. So the answer here is full stop. If you do not switch to FIDO2 approach, you will be compromised. It's just a matter of when. And that's it. Like, especially in well-targeted industries, you just switch across the board. Uh, We've done that. Full switch. FIDO2 is the requirement. And I mean, people are going to hear that and say, I don't know. Like, 
it's 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 before the breach or after the breach <laughs> probably about four years ago we were we we're all kicking and screaming how we go to mfa <laughs> that's that's old passe old hat yeah, yeah and well, it does present a really interesting challenge because yeah. security is one part academic and theory and another part practical and operations and so distributing physical tokens to a large enterprise is challenging Thinking about the whole B2C challenge, your consumers, that's a whole different issue. So I am really excited to see that pass keys are becoming more of a thing and you can do this natively with smartphones of you know a certain model. So the operations piece is another component here that of course scares some companies. It's all about, you know, raising the bar, right? Making it harder for attackers to accomplish these objectives. And will pass keys be the future forever and always? Who knows, right? But at least it's a better step than what we've had before, for sure. Yeah. A lot of the password list guys and the 502 guys, a lot of, you know, the identity guys, are, they're just making a killing right now. They're growing so fast, much faster than a lot of the other vendors that we talk to. To Michael's point, you've got to get past just MFA, especially as we start going down zero trust and everything else. But yeah, the guys like Hyper are growing like crazy. Good yeah, and it, all, it all ties together because if we think about the criminal enterprise as a business, why move on to more clever attacks if like the yeah. tried and true keep working? And so phishing keeps on working and then going after known vulnerabilities that aren't patched because you don't understand your inventory and where you're missing patches and coverage. That's another great method. You don't need to use a zero day if the 300 day works. I like to say that a lot. Makes Good sense. Point. <laughs> so last on our list was a nation state threat group actually based in North Korea that is now exploiting a previously known vulnerability as of a week or two ago with a very old but still popular compression tool called WinRAR. And specifically, they're actually going after cryptocurrency companies, delivering infected payloads, getting users to actually open them up, and then the malware actually steals any cryptocurrency wallets that might be exposed on those systems. This seems to be a pretty common tactic for, for North Korea. By far, one of, of all of the different nation state threat groups, they seem to be the furthest advanced when it comes to either using cryptocurrency or going after cryptocurrency victims. I'm curious, Michael, from your perspective, do you see this trend in other potential groups beyond just North Korean, or is it exclusive to just this region? Oh, I don't think it's exclusive at all. The fact that crypto companies are targeted more often is the byproduct that it is much easier to go from compromise to extraction of value. For many years, the cyber criminals would steal user data. And I think people are like, yeah, that's not good. But like, eh, you know, <laughs> so what? And of course, it's not good. But like from the cyber criminal side, when they steal user data, like there's multiple steps to try and monetize that. Like, what are you going to do with a bunch of names and addresses, even though it's not good to have that breach? But when you steal cryptocurrency, that's like immediate, you know, value extraction, immediately converted to cash. And so the other challenge is that whereas traditional, you know, TradFi, of course, if you compromise a bank, you could steal that money too. But they have series of controls in terms of how the banking industry is done, where you can, in some cases, recall that funds or... On the other hand, they just move so, so slow that any sort of change in technology is evaluated to death because they don't need to innovate. Right. Flip, every, flip, flip all of that on its head and look at an emerging industry where innovation is the reason it exists and they are going a million miles an hour. And that's why the crypto industry is kind of ripe for these challenges. They're figuring new things out. 
everything is changing at an incredibly fast pace. And sure, security is stressed amazing amounts, but there's so much surface area and so many things changing. And then, you know, what you see in the crypto companies is not that someone is breaking the blockchain. They're not finding level one style issues. They're finding flaws in just corporate operations. Like, oh, you didn't patch some software. Or, oh, mm-hmm. we compromised your website, you know, your web two. There's no web three here. Your web two website, we compromised it. We just changed the wallet address that was on the mm-hmm. website. Or maybe somebody pushed a testing root cert to production by mistake. All of those things are real root causes of breaches that have happened. So yeah, North Korea is well known for targeting crypto companies. And they have pulled in a ton of money if you can you know, do the tracing, which is concerning based on what North Korea may want to be using those funds for. But it's not limited to just them, not at all. Yeah, Landrix is incredibly prolific. I think right now they have something in the neighborhood of like 13 active campaigns going on right now. And, and about seven of them are all basically focused on cryptocurrency. Yeah. Michael, I 100% agree with you. And I wouldn't say it's a nascent market, but you know, there's a lot of the security defenses haven't been put out there on how do you protect your wallets. Plus North Korea, they're the ones that need the money and they, they have, you know, it's hard to get money in and out of there. It's like Iran. So this is a better way to do it and it gets people paid. Right. It's it's interesting. I mean, for organizations that actually use cryptocurrency for legitimate business operations, from your perspective, Michael, are there practical things that they should think about to ensure that at least it's harder for an attacker to actually steal those funds? Are there specific controls or safeguards that come to your mind for anyone who's trying to transact safely in this platform? Yeah, definitely. And it really depends on like where you want to like look at that conversation. Like from the perspective of a company that's building an exchange or building custody, like that is, you know, robust soup to nuts security controls across every layer of development stack, Mm -hmm. operation stack, et cetera. And many of those are all really tried and true concepts. All the things we stress for regular corporations today. But on the user side, or even the business as a user side, there's a few well-known best practices that you really want to adhere to. One of which is the concept of a hot and a cold wallet. Like basically, don't put your entire life savings under your mattress. And so what that means is you have your hot wallet where you have some amount of operational cash that you might need to use to transact. But in the event that that was compromised, you don't lose massive amounts of money. The cold wallet is fully offline and much more controlled and secure that way. And then along with that, you make sure that the private keys associated with these wallets, at least the cold wallet, is never entered into a computer. That way you don't have to worry about, oh, does this one computer, is it perhaps compromised with malware just waiting for someone to enter a private key so it can steal it? Because once you have the private key and the, the blockchain wallet address, you could extract the funds. So it's about being diligent in those cases. Now, the thing about these expectations of a company is this is still on kind of the bleeding edge curve of user adoption. These expectations are not reasonable when we have broader market adoption. So part of the innovation that's needed in this space is saying, how do you take innovative new technology that unlocks all sorts of capabilities, you know, cross-border payments, easier settlement time, all sorts of incentive structures, and bring it to the larger market by tearing down these unrealistic expectations. And wow, look at that full circle again, unrealistic expectations on humans. Humans can only be expected to do so much. Technology has got to get better. And so, you know, we see it in all directions. Yeah, no, that's a great common theme. I mean, so you mentioned a while back how all these different technologies, all these different security mechanisms need to be easy and yet invisible to the end user. 
I'm curious, do you have some practical examples that kind of highlight what you've seen so far in innovation in this area? Or is it still kind of niche and, and, and people are still trying to figure that out from your perspective? Yeah, I, I really started to experience this firsthand at Mozilla, which was, wow, more than a dozen years ago. And this was when we were thinking about security for users interacting with websites, but at a massive consumer scale. And so if you remember back in the early earlier days of web browsers, do you remember like getting SSL error messages with websites or even worse, like mixed content warnings? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so the mixed content <laughs> warning is like a really good example of like where we as security people said, hey, there's a security problem. But what we did is we said, well, let's show the user and give them choice. Let's let them choose what they want to do. But if you process all that, like someone is sitting at their computer, they see this message like mixed content. Do you want to continue? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I want to get to my bank. Sure. Like the disconnect between expectations was unfair. And so right. in the browser world, we started to see these changes where we fooled ourselves thinking we gave users choice and that was the right decision. Instead, we had to mm. buck up and say, you know what? We have to set the default. And that is the most important decision. And it's the hardest decision. Because everybody, 98% of the users will use the defaults. And we have to decide what will happen instead and take this out of the equation of the user. And so that kind of exposure was kind of the beginning of it. And as, as things go on as a security operator, this concept of making security easier. I, I remember using so many security tools and you'd run a scan and you're like, hey, here's 10,000 vulnerabilities. And you're like, there's not 10,000 vulnerabilities. Like, well, no, of course there's not. You just need to check them all because there's probably 5,000. I'm like, well, this, this is not helpful to me. As I tried to operationalize those things in Mozilla or in Twitter, like I can't just tell my security engineers to do this or throw it over the gate to developers and have them do it. It just doesn't make any sense. And so very quickly, the need was, I don't need you to find all 5,000 of the known vulnerabilities if you tell me there's 10,000. Like that is an operational breakdown. But if you right. can tell me that there are 4,000 and, and you get that right, that's great. Right. I can streamline that in the business. And then I can figure out what incremental tools I want to do for the next thousand I need to find. And so all of these things start to come together to invisible, easy, accurate. Like that is the theme of where security needs to go. It is a monumentally hard problem, especially for organizations that are serving millions of customers, honestly. And I think the theory and the philosophy behind the browser lock icon has evolved so much because people didn't understand what that meant. And the assumptions that went into that alone, to your point, making things easy, but yet secure by default, that's a hard problem. It sounds great in principle, but when you try to apply it in practice, there's all these weird corner cases and in some cases, dark patterns that emerge. One interesting article that I read recently was how a small tech startup called Retool actually got compromised because Google introduced a dark pattern into how they were trying to make it easier for users to auth in through, I think, Google Workspace and Okta. Yeah. So they would escrow the MFA token for you so that now instead of two-factor, it goes back to one-factor. They had good intentions, right? They tried to make it easy. Google tried to make it easy. But in doing so, they actually lowered the barrier of security. So it's not an easy problem. And even the big companies don't necessarily get it right all the time. I agree. I mean, I think even the 
migration from password managers from on endpoints to a cloud-based storage has been one that we've looked very hard at because it does make it easier for management of those one password vaults, but mm -hmm. then turn around and look at LastPass's two breaches in a row and the disclosures of their architecture. It was shocking. And you're right that it's a very fine line that we have to thread here of making it easier while not making a mistake. And that that is almost okay because if somebody has to get it right and can't ever make a mistake, like let's put that in a very tight spot of security experts that will work really hard. And they may make some mistakes, but hopefully very few, but that challenge we should put on them versus all users. Yeah. I think companies too also need to really kind of take into account. You said this earlier, Michael, about making sure you have enough technology in place. But I think you have to have redundant technologies in there as well, to, mm -hmm. just as a fail safe. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, browsers are the windows into the enterprise. Those are big targets. And so what do you have behind that browser that to protect the user and protect the organization? And a lot of companies just say, well, I just, I bought Okta. I'm good. Or I bought this. I'm good. Nine times out of 10, that's not the case. It's very scary how a number of organizations are, I don't know if complacent is the word, maybe misguided, misinformed, but yeah. you're right. Like. If you just have Okta, that Okta would be great. Like you have perhaps, you know, a good uniform login approach. That's great. But like, if you don't patch your browser, browser-based vulnerabilities, you're just going to any old website and you get compromised. Then you have a compromised endpoint. I mean, things like browser isolation has really not gotten enough innovation. Like there's a few companies out there that I think in the news are being eyed for acquisition. So maybe that will bring them to the mainstream. But like yeah. browser isolation needs to be seamless. Like the concept that we berate users for clicking a link, which again, I think is actually wrong. Like you should be able to click on links, but then we're just like, oh yeah. And by the way, just here's a PDF resume from anyone and everyone. Like there should be technology controls to do nice isolation there to easily control the browser, virtualized browser to do, do better browser patching. These are just easy ways into companies that are not getting enough attention. I 100% agree with you, 100%. Guys like Talon and Island are doing some really interesting yep. things. And then Garrison, which is kind of more on the five eyes intelligence community work. But one of the challenges that these companies have is I can go get a browser for free from Google or Microsoft or whomever. Why would I pay for this? And these companies have kind of struggled to build their use cases early on. Mm -hmm. Once you start getting into TPRM and you, the companies are doing a lot of M&A work, things like that. So there's a lot of partners that are touching technology. They all go through the browser. And so their use cases are finally getting stronger. One of them is probably likely going to get bought, which I think is great because that will elevate it. But I think, you know, that that's, that just goes back to, I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. If companies aren't putting the money there to purchase those solutions, we know they're yeah. purchasing all sorts of things under the sun. In terms of like the most likely threat vectors, like we've got authentication and phishing and you've got browser vulnerabilities to known issues, like browser-based ones and OS-based ones. Those are like tried and true. And so yep. it points back to like, all right, where are we failing to impart this knowledge on companies? And is that because we don't have root cause required reporting on breaches? Like that would help. If we had an actual database of like, here are the real numbers of what caused breaches across corporations, I don't know how feasible it is to get that, but that kind of data, that could help. If we had cyber insurance policies actually be a bit prescriptive, instead of, I don't know if you guys have gone through them recently, you sit in a room for 30 minutes, they ask a few questions, they say, you look like a good dude, and they write you an insurance policy. Like, 
I think there's a lot of opportunity here to have somebody disrupt it with actual validation or a little bit more prescriptive might be dangerous, but a little bit more detailed than that. I think they had to go that way because last time I went through the process buying cybersecurity insurance, our CSO about quit because they kept coming back and asking the same questions just a different way. 50, 60 questions. And arguably we were doing physical security as well. And we had facilities in Iraq and things like that. We had goons with guns, but it was a nightmare to go through. And I think these companies, because they're seeing such phenomenal growth right now, the cybersecurity insurance companies, guys like Marsh and AccraSure, those guys, they had to become more prescriptive. And I think now they're playing the numbers game as opposed to doing the actual work of being an underwriter. It's funny. I'm curious if the cybersecurity insurance industry is actually growing or shrinking compared to other insurance industries out there. For example, you can't even get most houses in the state of Florida covered by homeowners insurance because of the hurricanes and climate change, right? So is there a parallel to climate change in the cybersecurity realm? Is it just the increasing attacks of ransomware that suddenly is convincing more and more insurers to pull out potentially? Or is that not necessarily a thing from your perspective, Michael? Well, of anyone, insurers at least play the numbers game. And whether or not they're playing it with the same way we want them to, but they're looking at their PL. And so they have some decisions to make, which is to restrict the scope of coverage and invalidate the claims or find technicalities, which would then cause potentially the buyers to question if they should have anything, but really the buyers are cornered. They've got to have cyber insurance to check the box. Or on the other hand, the cyber insurers recognize they're going to make these payouts in some regards, but lower the bar for who they take. And so then they just take on massive more business and they're okay to do the payouts. But what I think they're starting to do, if they're smart, which they are, is to have better coverage rate adjustments. So have the ability to push that rate up or down based on ideally a more intelligent analysis of the company. I don't think many of those insurance providers have the capabilities. There's a few companies that are kind of taking that angle of, we know technology and we can be smarter about this. But I do still think there's a play at at least mid-market to say, hey, we'll do your insurance and we'll give you these great rates. Use these solutions. And suddenly like we guarantee you have good authentication. We guarantee you have good patching. And they can do that with an intelligent approach based on threats to say, we can offer lower rates because we know this is going to work out from actuarial tables. Yeah, sure. And and to answer your question on growth, Darian, they are growing like crazy, but it's through acquisition. It's not customer growth that is propelling it. It's actually, they're acquiring all these mom and pop brokers and rolling them into the bigger picture. I mean, they're doing really, really good revenue, but the growth is actually through them going off and finding all these small companies to go acquire that may or may not even know how to spell cybersecurity, but they have a license in a city and they can do all that, you know, so a lot of nuances. Well, you know, it's certainly a fascinating time to be a a security operator in any industry right now, given all (laughs) of these issues. And we'll see how the landscape evolves. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. And I certainly learned a lot. Thank you both very much for your time. To our audience, if you have other questions about what we covered or you want us to cover more topics like this or other topics that you have, please DM us at The Threat Show. Thank you very much both for your time. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. We'd love to stay connected. You can subscribe to us on YouTube or keep the conversation going on Twitter at The Threat Show.
please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the good word. Want to know if you're exposed to any of the major threats featured on today's show? Join the Fletch waitlist and you'll be living ahead of threats like these in no time. Stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.